thanks to the Democrats who rigged the election and stole it from the Trump train in 2020. Now I gotta pay more at the pump, and I can't afford to fill up my F-150. Welcome back to Pocketbook Politics. I'm your host, Reed Ramsey. This week, we are going to unpackage one of the main claims that conservatives oftentimes resort to when there's a transition of power in the White House, and that is that gas prices are directly correlated with whoever whoever sits in the White House. So we're going to unpackage exactly how the gas prices get formed, what influences them, and finally, what the future outlook of those gas prices look like. For part one, we are going to discuss how gas prices are formed and what components go into that formulation. Uh, Exactly uh, what are the externalities? What are you paying for at the pump? I feel like a lot of us don't really think about this. I feel like we just think that there's just this corporation that churns out gas and depending on who's in the White House, how much money they have and so on and so forth. It influences the money, or it influences how much we pay. Or maybe it's just just the gas station. Maybe we go all the way back to when Standard Oil was sweating out gas stations across the board so that they couldn't compete with him as he horizontally integrated the industry. But I digress, as I usually do in these episodes. We're not talking about the uh, Rockefellers and Standard Oil and how they became who they were and how that kind of shaped the oil industry. What I'm talking about in this first segment is some of the costs and what goes in to formulating these gas prices because it isn't just one singular thing. And, and I will be the first to admit as well, I'm not an expert by any means on this subject. I wanted to learn a little bit more myself about what goes into gas prices. So I I was able to do some research myself. I would encourage you to do the same, right? I I hope that this episode functions as a motivating tool for you in order to do that additional legwork to figure out where your money's going for when we frequently, begrudgingly, and painstakingly put the gas in our vehicles. So just as for context, according to Forbes in 2021, Um, As with any commodity, one factor that dictates price is demand. The world demand is around 90 million barrels per day for crude oil. Crude oil is one of the key components in formulating in the creation of gasoline. And many countries have fuel subsidies for their residents. This can be good and bad. It's especially bad when a company is forced to sell at a loss. Supply, uh, the supply has an effect on price. Supply is usually kept slightly below demand by about 1 million barrels per day. So what that ultimately goes to tell you is that us as taxpayers, we're paying for it times two. We pay for it every time we have taxes taken out of our paychecks and as we pay for taxes towards the end of the year. And we incur some of those other costs, which might be from production shortages or strategic production shortages, the price of crude oil, Brent crude, or other raw uh, commodities that go into it, the labor and the transport, um, and kind of what's going on, right? So there's a lot of things that factor into this, more more so than just who's sitting in the White House. Sure, I think that there is a, like a shred of validity to that argument. 
whoever's in the White House, they might have a certain agenda, and that might send a sort of short-term perception to investors or industries to, to tell them to either take their foot off the pedal or put it on the pedal in terms of production. But there are also externalities out there that I would say influence it even more than just who is in the White House. There were expensive gas prices, uh, you know, when, when Trump was in office initially, it went down for other means, and, and we'll get into that. So the first thing that influences the price of gas and what influences roughly 53 to 56% of what you pay at the pump is the cost of crude oil. Now, crude oil is that raw stuff that you get out of the ground, you know, if you've seen uh, there will be blood. It's, it's what the oil man is going after. He's going after that raw black tar oil. That is the main cost that we are paying for. So the cost of crude oil is the largest factor in retail price of gasoline. The cost of crude oil as a share of the retail gasoline price varies over time and across regions of the country. The U.S. crude oil prices are determined by global fundamentals, including supply and demand, inventory, seasonality, financial market considerations, and expectations. So this brings us back to 2020, March, pandemic. The global, uh, well, let's just start nationally at the United States. The national demand for oil was down significantly, down significantly. Why? Because people weren't traveling. People were under stay-at-home orders. They weren't hopping on planes. They weren't going in their cars. They were working at home, so they didn't need to drive to work. So literally, the national demand for oil halted overnight and it halted for the next 12 i mean up until now right i i as vaccines get rolled out i actually just got my second dose of pfizer today as more people get vaccinated this trend is turning around which is where we find ourselves so i'm gonna reserve some of that for part two here but the market uh influencers and considerations are very heavily influenced in this regard and i think that the pandemic gave us this sort of artificial lull in the market because there was such low demand crude oil prices plummeted to about like i think they got as low as the 17 dollars per barrel which is historically low right and i think that's 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 mainly for the saudi oil um i believe that oil production in the united states also went down because demand was down and we used to import a significant more than like 50 percent of our oil used to come from Saudi Arabia, but in the 70s when we haven't had an oil shock and people were lining up at gas stations to get gas, we were really trying to change that narrative. And I believe that we really did that uh, throughout the years, the George Bush era, even Obama. I believe we came in, became energy uh, sufficient or dependent on ourselves. right? We weren't uh, independent on Saudi Arabia or these other OPEC nations. Um, but that's kind of shifted a little bit. We've started to import more than we used to because the production of oil in the United States has gone down since the pandemic. And it's it, it, it's trying to make a resurgence, but it's not completely there. So they needed to fill in some of the gaps. So you also get the externalities of influence from Saudi Arabia sending in oil, which can sort of um, mess with the domestic markets here in the United States. So functionally, what we have now in 2021, April 16th, is that the oil prices are about three times as much as they were in the heart of the pandemic. So that's where the prices, I, I would say 50% of the reason why the prices are going up now is because crude oil is more expensive. Additionally, the Energy Information Administration uh, re released recent reports, as they do, 
they expect the rising price of crude oil, which is started in the fourth quarter of 2020, which was, you know, around when vaccines were speculated, speculated to go out. First responders were getting their vaccines that, that we were take, the turning the tide in the pandemic. In the fourth quarter, 2020, uh, they expect uh, that the it will contribute to more U.S. crude oil production uh, later that year. Uh, they also forecast that monthly domestic crude production will reach 11.3 million barrels per day by the end of 2021 and 11.9 million barrels per day by the end of 22. So that's ultimately means that we're like trying to chug back along and trying to get back to that point. So domestic production is increasing, but we'll talk a little bit later about why domestic production might not be able to meet that demand and it might be a little bit detrimental down the road. Additionally, there's other costs as well. These are a little bit smaller, but for instance, second, refining cost and profits. So that's, you know, BP, Exxon, Mobil, these they, they have to make profits. So some of that money you pay directly to the corporation. And then refining costs. So they have to take that oil, they have to refine it, so on and so forth. And one of the bigger things that I also saw was when Biden got elected and he struck down the Keystone Pipeline, everyone was like, oh, oil jobs, right? You, you know, we need, we, my, my truck don't run on rainbow farts, right? You need gas to fill up to go to work. Like, no, 100% get that. Definitely get that. But the Keystone XL Pipeline was just a drop in the bucket and plus, that was even nastier shit coming down from Canada. Literally, the tar sands up in Canada is like there's crude oil in this mucky sand. And they're like, have to, re and the refining process is so much harder that, like, I, I think that it would ultimately come out as cost negative, right? So it would cost you more to get oil out of that nasty, mucky bullshit then external forces, right? So I don't think the Keystone XL pipeline was really a deal breaker for why gas prices went up. On top of that, um, it would have been, it, you know, it already had polluted, or maybe I'm thinking of an, an, another pipeline. Dakota Access Pipeline was another one that was highly debated and uh, uh, protested against. It polluted uh, many waterways, reservoirs already. Keystone Pipeline was set up to do that as well, uh, and it was just not going to be great. One of the counter arguments to that, though, is the transportation of oil can be dangerous because we have to do it by rail. And there is like a shit ton of uh, train car trains that like go derail because our infrastructure is so awful that it causes explosions, smoke and other devastation in these communities in which they uh, fucking crash in. So that's the other side. But at the nonetheless, it's better than a bunch of oil, you know, just pumping out of a pipeline and having to look at a pipeline. I find it hilarious that we'd rather look at a pipeline that's leaking oil than have just a wind turbine or a hydro dam or something like that uh, outside. But I digress, as I usually do. Lastly, distribution of marketing costs plus reasonable profits. So profits, profits, distribution, marketing, profits. So what we also pay for, so th get this. So we pay billions and billions of dollars in subsidies to fo the fossil fuel industry to make their industry more competitive for them to incentivize to go and explore, dig, and produce oil and gasoline. As a result of us taxpayers paying for that, we then pay for it again at the pump. So like we pay for it like quadruply. 
because we pay them their profits. So then they give their corporate boards and millions of dollars in bonuses. And then we pay them to market to us or consumers or other businesses to have their gas or their oil utilized here. And then we get the gas, right? So at the end, it's like, there's a couple people to blame. First, subsidies, I guess like at a certain point they do work, but they're kind of getting outdated and it's just this big slush fund of money that they can just, cut, you know, just rake in. And when you look at global oil and fossil fuel profits, it much you know, outpaces any subsidy. So it doesn't really make sense why we do that. But then we pay for it again at the pump. We pay for it again at the pump. So just to recap, we pay for 50% of the cost at the pump is because of the cost of crude oil, which has different market influencers. It has environmental influences, you know, time and place, what's happening within the market, seasonality, inventory, supply and demand, right? If you got higher supply, sometimes the you got to use more reserves. You got to avert a crisis so you don't have a shortage. But you also kind of like pull back the tap, right? You kind of tighten the the dispense, this dispense. What am I trying to say here? They artificially limit giving out the oil in some instances to keep the prices more competitive so it doesn't drop so significantly. I think that's ultimately what I was trying to say. Jeez, sorry. Stumbling over my words here. It is, uh, you know, day three of fasting. I haven't eaten today, so give me a break. Additionally, crude oil has a lot of shit that influences it. Second, refining costs and profits. And third, distribution, marketing costs, and more profit. So we pay for it because of the oil. We pay for it because of the company profits, distribution, and marketing, right? So those are the key factors. The last thing I guess I forgot to mention in my little list here, local, state, and federal taxes. So the federal government has like a certain, uh, I think it's like 18 and a half cents per gallon tax on top of your respective state tax. In California, where I live, the state tax is like 67 cents or 68 cents a gallon. So that's why I just paid today $3.67 at the pump versus the my family back in Kansas who is going to be paying $2.85-ish cents. So uh, roughly like a dollar or less. That's because of things like state taxes, right? I believe Kansas state taxes on, on gas is much cheaper than California because they have far less, well, they have far less regulations and things like that. So, and, and local, local governments as well. So there's a lot of influences, cost of oil, refining costs, profits, and taxes, state and uh, federal level. So it's not just Biden setting up there wanting you to not be able to fill up your F-150. A lot of this has to do with what is happening now and what has happened in the sort of immediate past and what the trends are for the future, right? As we come out of the if, as we surface from this global pandemic the trends are changing the market's changing and the demand is shifting in a different direction in part two we're going to talk about the subsidies that the taxpayers fork over to big oil and how gas prices are ultimately jumping now and how they're only going to continue the jump. We'll reserve that for part three in this discussion. But for now, let's talk a little bit about subsidies. So what are subsidies? 
So you might have heard subsidies before. I know that you probably heard of subsidies when it comes to corn and ethanol. I know during the George W. Bush administration, there was a huge push to subsidize corn uh, farming for the for the production uh, of corn in food, right? Like high fructose corn syrup or other corn products for feed, for cattle, for livestock, but also uh, corn to produce ethanol so that there is an alternative means to fuel vehicles. And I know that there were standards for a while. I don't know if they still exist. They probably do where they utilize some of the ethanol in the production of gasoline um, so that it sort of diversifies a little of the the fuel itself, trying to get the, uh, I guess, the biggest bang for your buck, while at the same time trying to help out the farmers. Well, I mean, that doesn't always pan out that way, since a lot of these farms, these large monoculture farms or big, large agribusinesses, they're no longer those mom-and-pop businesses that uh, were of, you know, the yesteryear. These are the the 96% of the agriculture industry, which makes up uh, large, multinational sometimes agriculture businesses. But as usual, and as in part one, I digress. I'm trying to give us a little context here. So we also do a similar thing for fossil fuels, that being majorly coal, natural gas, oil, like all of these things. So what they, they functionally do is they the subsidies are granted to the fossil fuel industry uh, that are designed to lower the cost of fossil fuel production and incentivize new domestic energy sources. So I think that this is a double-edged sword. I think that for a while there is a, a this sort of domestic energy boom, and I think that there were a little uh, like a price decrease in gas because of that reason. But this is a fossil fuel. These are finite resources. I think the biggest example here is the the shale boom. Uh, the Marcellus Shale in the Northeast was a prime example of this. There's a big shale reserve, you know, over by like Pennsylvania and in the Northeast of the United States. But if you've seen like these documentaries like Gasland 1 and 2 or the cases of individuals living in these places to where the, the gas company comes and says, hey, can we frack over here, hydraulic fracture, on your land and produce this oil or to, the, produce this natural gas. Natural gas often is used for things like uh, cooking. Um, it's used for heating your home and other things, right? But this ultimately meant that they were just disrupting under the Earth's crust so much that people uh, didn't have water that was drinkable. They didn't have potable water. Their faucets literally were excreting gas which caused fire and could cause their houses to burn up and functionally made their land worthless. Their private property, their private property, oftentimes many acres of land made it uninhabitable, unsellable, and worthless. And they got a measly check for signing over the rights functionally to that land. So that is part of where the subsidies had went because a part of that shale boom was the ability to ramp up production and exploration at a very low cost because they had the backing of the federal government. You know, if any industry had significant taxpayer dollars subsidizing them, they could get off the ground. I don't know where, where the statistic was, but 
I, it was maybe a couple of years ago where I was looking, uh, at, I don't know, it was another documentary somewhere, and it said that the literally the only, and may, maybe the coal industry, maybe that like the only reason why like those 14,000 jobs exist and why it's somewhat com artificially competitive is solely because of subsidies. So if the subsidies were taken away, we would move to external energy sources that are cost neutral. Right, so like we are literally shoveling in more money than what the energy sources are worth, both in jobs and just pure profits in money. So all of this industry is artificially propped up by both the left and the right, both liberals and conservatives alike, because they pay for their campaigns and they have a tremendous amount of money. So the like I said, it grants to lower the cost of production and incentivizes new energy sources. Conservative estimates that put the United States at direct subsidies to fossil fuel uh, industry roughly $20 billion per year. I think there's, it's more than that, actually. With 20% currently allocated coal, 80% to natural gas and crude oil. So that those are, you know, crude oil being, you know, 50% of what you pay at the pump. So we are trying to, like, subsidize oil to decrease the cost of money you pay at the pump. So, like I was saying before, we pay double, right, because we pay in our taxpayer monies as well. The U.S. taxpayer continues to fund many fossil fuel subsidies that are outdated but remain embedded within the tax code. And that goes back to what I was saying is that uh, we're paying for these million-dollar um, bonuses to these corporate elites at Chevron, at BP, uh, Bridge Petroleum, whatever company, gas, oil company that you want to talk about. We are incentivizing them to get filthy rich. And so— uh, of the 1,800 largest publicly traded oil, gas, and coal companies worldwide, uh, the worldwide earned net profits was worth $500 billion in 2013. That was years ago. We're talking, what, that's almost a decade ago at this point. $500 billion. I believe it's way more than that now. And direct subsidies are worth $700 billion when you— Put it all together. $700 billion. So that's basically, we pay what we pay for the, functionally, the entire military and defense budget on subsidies for oil and natural gas. And, and that should surprise you and that should baffle you, right? Because we could be putting these dollars into some, like so much better programs than this. And I understand like, oh, but but read it's it's the gas prices are going to be extreme. The market can't shift that quickly. Why, why would we do that? Well, let me tell you. <clears throat> I believe that this would functionally even out the the playing field and allow more competition in the marketplace. Let the free market do what it does, or at least do what like the right says it's supposed to do. Right. So let's. Reduce the amount of subsidies, maybe start funneling another pool of subsidies to uh, renewable energy markets and other other things, you know, electric vehicles, things like this. And, and then eventually what happens is the sustainable energy and electricity production goes into the electric vehicle charging stations so that it isn't coal-fired power plants that are powering your electric vehicles, which is the biggest conservative argument against that which is like, you know, oh, it's, it's, you know, clean, but not clean, right? So there's ways that we can reduce the amount of subsidies we are paying as taxpayers to a dying industry. Like I was saying, fossil fuel is a finite resource. 
if we don't do this now, what will happen? If we don't do this now in the next, I don't know, 90, 50, 100 years-ish, we're going to start seeing that point in time to where a lot of the oil reserves are going to be going dry, at least maybe domestically in the United States. Don't know if Saudi Arabia has any oil that's just laying in their backyard they don't know about. Years ago, decades ago, they moved from inland domestic drilling to offshore drilling, which tells you a couple of things. First, it tells you that they are worried about their domestic uh, oil production supplies around like the land base. And if they go into the sea, it means they're desperate because drilling in the sea is not easy. It costs more in terms of production. It's more invasive on the environment. Well, I mean, either way, it's invasive. But just think about it. You have to drill down into like just a, a, a shit ton of depth of water to, to get this oil. And then it increases the risk of a, a, a slew of other things to go wrong, as we saw with the BP oil spill. Uh, in the Gulf of Mexico. So we are going to hit that period if we don't change anyway. So we need to change now to smooth out that the the as we you know come to ground, right? We need to smooth that 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 ultimately out. So taxpayers subsidize the oil industry, who then you know shoots up the prices of the oil based on all these other market influencers, right? So I think that there's a way we could do a smooth transition away from that. Additionally, we talked about, you know, a little bit about subsidies, kind of at a surface level. I'm not going to go too deep into them, maybe on another episode, but I just, I kind of want to keep a lot of these topics a little bit more, not superficial, but sufficiently brief. So we talked about subsidies. So now we can talk a little bit about gas prices. So in the past month, you know, March, April, gas prices have jumped over 9%. So 9% growth. We've seen them steadily rise. And as I alluded to earlier in, in the first part here, the primary reason behind that was because the demand is increasing. People are on the road more. There's a lot of uh, previous research by the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics and the Consumer Price Index and all of these people that do this research on the domestic economy that people are going to be hitting the road more. Road trip season's coming up in the summertime, summer vacation. These are all uh, what I, I talked about earlier, which is sort of the uh, environmental and seasonality effects of gas prices. So gas prices, according to the uh, U.S. Bureau of Labor of Statistics, gas prices are up 22.5% from the previous year and were the biggest contributor, uh, contributor to an overall increase in goods and services in the nation. So also an increase in amount of goods, right? So if you notice, you go to the grocery store, set, like the price of meat. I know that there's that that like beef shortage because of supply chain dis disruptions, but also the price of distribution of these meats, of these vegetables, of food in general is going up because gas is going up. So we're not only paying for subsidies, we're paying for the profits of the companies to you know pay their boards millions of dollars in bonuses. We're also paying higher costs of food because they are the ones who supply the gas to the distribution of these things in things like semi-trucks, the diesel fuel that goes into that, so on and so forth. And Steve Naley, the Energy, Administra uh, the Energy Information Administration acting administrator said the group's outlook on the summer prices is largely tied to rising vaccination rates. So that seasonality, that, environment uh, that environmental effect, right? 
uh, in terms of what happening, what's happening in the market with the vaccines being rolled out. Um, it's just that's the trend that's happening. They forecast that 15% more highway travel this summer as a result of rising employment, easing regional restrictions designed to slow the pandemic, and increase overall economic activity as vaccinations uh, increase. So just as I was saying before, so they are going to, they're forecasting 15% increase. So this is just a forecast. And I know a lot of these forecasts, even during the pandemic, were broken because they had direct data, for instance, of flying, for traveling. People were still traveling during the pandemic regardless, right? But writ large, um, people weren't traveling as much, right? Going to work, so on and so forth. But now that there's less restrictions or there's going to be less restrictions, people are going to be out and about more. Um, so that uh, that's basically kind of what the future holds for gas prices as we move into this post-pandemic world. So I think I actually just uh, kind of uh, put both my point one and two or point two and three together. So I don't necessarily see uh, the need for the point three at this uh, at this juncture. So just to recap. We talked uh, briefly about the su uh, the subsidies the taxpayers pay money into these companies to incentivize production and distribution and exploration of oil, and gas prices are increasing because demand is simply going up, so there needs to be more oil. Um, and also, the Energy Administ uh, Information Administration is speculating that there is going to be uh, 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 an even higher climb to a three-year high in oil prices this summer. So it's going to be up 34% from 2020 in the next six months, according to the EIA. And that's largely because of the highway travel in the summertime, employment increasing, regional restrictions decreasing and slowing down. Pandemic is, is coming to at least a, a little lull, at least a decrease because we can insulate ourselves a bit more. So there you have it. The gas prices at the pump are influenced more than just who's president. It isn't just Joe Biden who's influencing this. And let me also say that it's pretty hard to do a top-down, across-the-board change to these types of tax codes and in subsidizing the oil industry. It takes a lot of congressional might to do that. I don't believe that he could just do that through executive power. So the only argument they really have is market speculation. But market speculation only lasts so long. It might last, I don't know, certain periods of time, maybe based on something that Biden says. I know he's talking a lot about this infrastructure deal that would functionally transition us to a more greener economy. So that might have a little influence. But, I mean, realistically, that has a minimal influence on the global markets themselves. So I don't think that, that argument really holds up. Trump, Obama, Bush, doesn't matter who really it is, all these other factors matter more. And you got to look beyond just the surface or what Tucker Carlson is telling you, uh, you know, on Fox News during the afternoon. Because it's not always true, it's not always the case. So you need to dig a little bit deeper. And if you really are concerned about taxes, if you really are concerned about these things, then maybe you need to explore further, uh, you know, who these people and these thought leaders that you take the word of explore who fills their pockets, explore who funds their campaigns, 
who funnels money into their organizations, this might give you a little bit of a clue as to why you have certain opinions about things like gas prices. In the end, it isn't necessarily Biden's fault. Biden can't help it that he can barely keep a cogent thought together, right? I mean, the man's like 83 years old. Cut him a break. But nevertheless, this is a historical thing. History tells us that we often make the wrong decisions here in America and in, in history in general. But at least when it comes to subsidies, it artificially inflates the market. It also props up an energy that should nowhere be at, at where it is now. They're making 700-plus billion dollars in profits, and that was just almost 10 years ago. They're probably up in the trillions of dollars now. There's absolutely no reason why an industry worth that much money should be taking taxpayer money away from our pockets and then making us pay for it again at the pump by stocking their, their pockets, their corporate boards with bonuses, and then getting off scot-free when it comes to climate change, when it comes to ecological destruction. They should be held online for this. They should be held to the, to the devastation in which they have caused. Additionally, if we scale back some of those subsidies, make other markets such as renewable, sustainable energies more competitive, then we're going to see a better energy market. Why wouldn't you want a solar panel on your home decreasing the cost of utility bills? Why wouldn't you want a wind farm in your community decreasing your reliance on a national domestic grid? Why not create microgrids that are both cheaper to maintain, they're more locally controlled by the people, and they get the, the federal government away from centralizing the control? I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, right? We do have a national grid for a reason. The winter storm in Texas gives us a brilliant example as to why that domestic grid is important. But nonetheless, within that infrastructure, as we keep evolving and creating better infrastructure, we can create localized versions of energy markets that are better for the consumer, both in the short term and in the long term, while at the same time combating all of the negative effects of things like natural gas, coal-fired power plants, and the oil and gasoline markets. It's common sense. It makes sense. It's also conservative. It's also consistent with those conservative ideals of independence and relying on yourself. Self-reliance is a huge narrative when it comes to that side of the political spectrum. So I don't understand why we can't do more to work together to, to fight for those things that are both good for your pocketbook and good for the local economy and energy. So today, we talked briefly about what goes into the cost of gasoline, those primarily being the cost of oil, the cost of refinery, the cost of distribution, marketing, and profits for the companies. On top of that, you have the state, local, and federal taxes. Second, we talked about how the fossil fuel industry is subsidized significantly by the U.S. taxpayer, who then pays for it again at the pump. Additionally, we, we talked finally— we talked about how gas prices are rising now, 
and gas prices are only going to continue to rise to historical levels in just a few months. Summer is literally two months away, and we are going to see a 34% rise in gas prices. Gas prices are only going up. They are only going up. And that is not just because Biden is in office. It just so happens that Biden comes into office on the, the, the tail of a global pandemic that has wreaked havoc on global markets and on everyone's pocketbook. So now we got to dig ourselves out. And corporations in the top 1% have built trillions of dollars in wealth as a result of this catastrophe, and they only continue to do that. So why would we disagree in saying that we should continue with a system that is fundamentally broken. I hope that illuminates some of the issues. I hope it sparks some motivation inside of you to do some your own independent research to figure out exactly what you're paying for instead of just strawmanning the other side by saying that it's just because of one party or one person in the Oval Office. It's much more dynamic than that. So I tell you, go and read some articles. Go and look at the Energy Administration, Energy Information Administration and other global economic market forecasts to understand the intricacies of the global markets when it comes to energy. Because I think that that's going to be a much more telling sign as to how much you're paying at the pump. Finally, we need to move to a more sustainable and cheaper means of energy. So I don't know why we can't agree that moving towards that model and away from a resource that is destined to run out at some point. We should move away now to absorb those negative shocks so we aren't caught empty-handed when we have no more oil to go and mine, when we have no more oil to go and find within the deep sea, within our lands, within other people's lands, or wherever else. Because even if we do reach that point, Climate change will be so devastating that we might all be dead anyway. This has been Pocketbook Politics. I'm your host, Reed Ramsey. Stay tuned for additional episodes, um, at the very least weekly, at the very most daily. So if you like this kind of content, go ahead and subscribe. There will be further content in the future in terms of video content and other sort of projects that might be coming down the road but my whole ethic here is to just get stuff out and keep churning it out hopefully it gets better with time i know that some of these things aren't as in-depth as i or probably you would like them to be but sometimes i just want to get on here and release some good information so if you're intrigued do your own research let me know what you think about gas prices i know that you're unhappy about them and hopefully we find some type of resolution in the future so that it's best for you, your pocketbook and mine as well. 